This is MC Fireside Chats, a weekly show devoted to the outdoor hospitality industry, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. You'll hear from special guests that focus on topics to help your business succeed, all backed by Modern Campground, the most innovative news source in the industry. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of MC Fireside Chats. My name is Brian Searle with Insider Perks, here, as always, with Kara Sismadia from the Canadian Camping and RV Council. We're super excited to present our open discussion show. Happens the first week of every month. We're excited to welcome back Mr. Randy Hendrickson, Mark Kep, Sandy Ellingson, and Ruben Martinez, who has been missing for a few months, but that's apparently my fault because he's got seven email addresses and I was always sending it to the wrong one. So super excited to have Ruben back. And Mr. Casey Cochran, I believe, is going to be joining us here a little bit later in the show. He's just tied up for the first half of it. And we've got a really cool announcement that we're not going to make yet, but that might happen next week with Ruben. So stay tuned for that. We might have something interesting to share with you next week on the show. But beyond that, Let's, let's start off today as we usually do with our open discussion. Normally I would toss it to all of you guys, but I want to take the lead here and just prompt a conversation that is a little bit dangerous, but I'm going to wade into the waters here first and say that, and let's briefly talk about consistency. And so there, and this is just my opinion to be clear, but consistency, when it comes to campgrounds, they use the experience that people have their expectations when they come to a park, like this is in my mind, really important for a KOA or a franchise or a Yogi Bear park. When you are a loyal KOA camper, you come and you expect the branding of the holidays or the journeys or the resorts. You expect that there be certain amenities and that the sites will be designed a certain way and the, the level of customer service and quality will be there. But I don't feel like that approach is a blanket statement for the entire industry. I think that as we've discussed on the show many times before, there are a lot of different operators. There are a lot of different consumers. There are a lot of people coming in from hotels into glamping, as Ruben can certainly talk about. And these customers have different expectations and they don't always want, some of them do, but they don't always want the same type of experience. And so yesterday, was it Mark? It was announced that ARVIC, National ARVIC, the National Association is coming out with this task force that has a lot of intelligent, amazing, super smart people on it that have been in the industry for a long time. A lot of respect for the people on there, but I'm not so sure that this is the right direction for the industry from a small operator. And we've seen that a little bit in your group, Mark, with some comments on a post that you made. I'm not so sure that we need a set of standards that should be exactly the same for everybody in the industry. I think there's a lot of room to innovate and a lot of room to change and a lot of room to do different things, different ways. And I think maybe there's a, a place for a minimum quality standard, but I don't know if there's a place for a standard across everything. So I just want to open up, throw myself under the bus there and into that kind of feisty little discussion. Take it away if anybody wants to pick it up. I'm sure Mr. Hendrickson maybe has some thoughts. Or Mark, do you want to start just why you... Yeah, I'll jump in. Ben Woodall's campground management, he posted that story and I picked it up and posted it on the Facebook group. And what stuck out to me, it's, if they're going to do standards, whatever, that's a conversation. And as you mentioned, the people that are on that board are some amazing folks. We know many of them. But what caught my eye is the release claim that they represented, they being ARVC, represented 13,000 park owners in the United States. And that's just factually untrue. It's factually untrue. There are a large number of very large states who have said to ARVC, hey, we like what you're doing. We're not going to be a part of it. And there's a large number of parts within those states who are not, no longer uh, members of the ARVC. 
for various reasons, whatever those reasons are. So where my first issue comes in is that we need a strong national association of campgrounds and RV parks in the United States to represent the interests of the owners and the industry at that level. We currently, this is going to raise some rough, ruffle some feathers here. We currently do not have a strong national association for obvious reasons. The big states are not members of it. Therefore, it's no longer a national association. And so where I, that's where I said, wait a second, this release is incorrect. Now it could just be a misquote and maybe they misstated. They went from 3000 to 13,000, let's add 10,000 onto it magically. That could be it. But that was what immediately caught my eye. The other thing that you mentioned is the release stated that they're going to be working on voluntary standards for various types of operations. And immediately what the owners within the Facebook group noted is that they're small park owners. They don't have the time, energy, or money to follow certain standards. So what exactly is going to come out of that? The group may decide, the folks that are on this group may decide that's the case. Most of the park owners won't be able to follow any standards they lay out. So they'll just have guidelines they list as this is what an RV park is. This is what an RV resort is. This is what a campground is. The problem is you start going down that route. The big question that comes to my mind is why? Why do we need this task force? What's the purpose of it? Is there some organization that's trying to help with way in that, that they're trying to muscle out? What's going on here? Why is the task force in the first place? Now, I don't know it. I'm not involved in the conversation, not involved with the RVC. Don't know that. That was why I posted the article and why it caught my eye in the first place. So I think my concern, just to finish, to follow up on your comment before I let everybody else jump in if they want to, I think Sandy will have some comments and Randy might. Ruben, feel free to jump into the buyer if you want to, too. We're not going to talk about this the whole show. But uh, one of the things that concerns me is, let's say you come out with this. Whoops. Nope. I've lost. Brian. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We all have. He's frozen. Okay. I'm going to jump in while we wait for him to come back. And I guess maybe just say, I completely agree with Mark. I would love to hear the thought process behind why this is happening. And maybe we can get some insights from somebody at Arvik at some point, but I, as a former operator of a small park, a small business, I can see the perspective of those specific individuals. And I was saying before we jumped on, I'm out of the loop. I'm not as informed or maybe on what, but I was just scrolling through the post on Facebook and checking out the comments. It is concerning. It's concerning to put this list of standards together. Who gets to decide what those are and what kind of impact does that have? I mean, the, the idea that a group of individuals should get to decide what kinds of camping experiences are available, I think is con seriously concerning for the industry. One of our biggest strengths is our adaptability. And it's quite a necessity because frankly, because of how different all of these parks are. And that that's a product of their different locations and their different proximities to different amenities and so many different factors that I think applying a based set of standards to them all is going to be, frankly, really tough. In my opinion, I can't see how it's achieved. Not without seriously impacting the outliers at the ends of the bell curves, the really small guys. And, and I totally agree with you too, Mark. And I just applaud you for being willing to actually bring the topic up because it is a hot potato. But I am a firm believer that if we're going to talk about standardization, Let's just say it's about safety and security. That needs to be at the state level. There are too many differences at the state to try and cover that at a national level. 
And so if there was a task force, it should be a task force at the state level run by the state. And then that information possibly shared with the national organization. I also totally agree with you, Mark, that we do need great national representation and it needs to be national representation that works for the state associations and for what's best for them. And that parks should be a part of their state association, not have to pay for a national association membership. And there are ways of doing that, generating the revenue for it and still making it profitable for both the parks and the national association. It's something I've been very vocal about in the past several months because some of these conversations have been being had prior to the public announcement. And so there are already a lot of parks extremely upset about what they perceive as happening. And I don't know if they have the right perception or not, because I don't know that anybody does. I don't even know if the existing task force has the right perception. So yeah. that concerns me too. Yeah, back where my red flags really go up is back during COVID. I'm going back in time a little bit. If you remember in the heart of it, there was this real, there was the, the idea that there were these businesses that it could be open or not open, basically essential businesses. And so there was a fear that there was this push to shut down some campgrounds and RV parks. And where I go is I go back to a moment in time when the National Association put out a document that said that RV parks and campgrounds could remain open, but they just had to tear down their gym equipment, physically remove their gym equipment from the property. And then that, then they would operate appropriately. And I, at that time I was a participating uh, vendor within the organization. I raised my hand and said, Hey, this, what did this, who said this idea? Like, where did this come from? And that was actually distributed. Luckily, none of the state um, powers that be picked up that document and tried to implement it because, good God, could you imagine RV parks and campgrounds being forced to tear down their gym equipment? Point being is those are the unintended consequences of big nationalist decisions being made. And so, again, that's just why I raised my hand. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm just saying where, why, number one, why, and number two, what's the, I guess it's the same question, why and what's the purpose of it? And my quick <clears throat> two, two cents here, I know that the, the little bit of comparing apples to, to oranges, but from the glamping industry, we actually started at the, from the American glamping association, there was big calls at the very beginning. The reason for the association was for standardization, right? That was the big calls. We need a star system like the hotels. We need health and safety and, and all that. And we looked into that really aggressively and it was very clear that it was going to be a very hard pathway forward to be a policing agency versus tools, resources, education, and assistance. We looked at the rating, we looked at defining different types of categories of accommodation and every pathway that we looked down was like, this really changes the makeup of the organization as a whole and what we stand for instead of us saying. Hey, looks like you're a little bit far away from where you need to be. Let's help you. It was turning into now you're three stars instead of five stars, or now you're in trouble and now you're not. And there was a big disconnect in who, what we were trying to accomplish and where we wanted to be versus what that standardization was. And there was also a significant amount of complications of enforcing, right? It's one thing to define and standardize, but then how do you enforce in a way that's actually good for the industry, which we just couldn't wrap our heads around maybe within this, maybe there is something there for enforcing that I just can't see, but those are the things that really stood out for us was not only the characterization of what an association should be and who they should be serving, but then how has it become, what's that intersection uh, of reality, right? Cause it's one thing to have a plan. It's one thing to try and uh, rule out that plan, but then how do you actually enforce it 
in a way that's good for the industry. We just couldn't wrap our heads around. And, and very early we said, okay, people wanted that, but we're going in a different direction. It's you know, mind blowing to me. Yeah, Brian, you were probably going to go to the same place. Go. Cool. <laughs> but Ruben, that's something that kind of strikes me about this ARPIC task force. Uh, structurally, I think to myself, I have a task force that should have a objective. What is the outcome of the task force, the conclusions you hope to come to? If it's an altruistic task force, which arguably it is, there's some good horsepower, then when we emerge with the set of Anderson practices, what's the, if you're 70 side, I got a 70 side part Texas. So if the stand come down from Arvig said should be doing X, Y, and Z, and that's not feasible for me, did I any benefit of, at all from that survey? Did it change the way I, it arguably does not. So there's altruism present with the notion as far as specific applicability. I think that's what is the juice. Now I've got this should be doing. It doesn't really change life too much for the park and campground industry, but it also speaks to something that the boards are 17 years. So I've got to live on both sides, the Aubrey side, the state side, that. And to me, it comes down to a couple basic precepts. One, you need a national association. Mark, I couldn't agree more. You need a strong national association. States that don't have a state association. And a national is really their only reason where they go for any kind of advocacy for their business or what have you. National association. What I've found in practical application, if you own that small park and you're choosing to join the national or the state, there's two ways of thinking. The first is defensive. If you're a small park, your defensive position is what are the regulations that affect me? What are the regulations? Uh, what pending legislation might there be? Who's watching that for me? Can't do that myself. Your state is going to be hyper dialed in to fact you on a state basis for those campgrounds. That's the immediate opposition. Nationally, you can argue, yes, there's a lot of advocacy they basis. Does it apply to my daily life? Maybe not so much. I'm glad they're doing it. If I have two checks to write, one to support the national and one to support the state, probably write that check and are in my state because they're walking. That's not a slam against national. They can't burn every state, but the states can do that. So those are some calculations, a small park up where it goes, got X amount of dollars. Where's it? That's spent as usually I'm going to cover my butt. States do that argument better than national can. Again, not by default design. That's right. I think from an association perspective, I can, I'll agree with Randy. I am in the same boat where I'm executive director of a provincial association. Then I've worked for the national association in a member services capacity. So I have experienced kind of both of those levels. And certainly I think our fundamental structure is different here in Canada compared to the states where, you know, when I get a new member inquiry for the national association, I direct them to the provincial association to join the members, the national association's members are the provincial. It's formatted that way so that their members receive all of the national benefits, but our members are actually the individual provincial associations. And I think that is beneficial specifically to the, to an operator, because now you're getting that support at both levels necessary. We can, for vendors and things that have national level coverage, we can offer that benefit 
at the national level and all everyone in all of the provinces gets it. Some of our vendors are only in certain provinces. And so they, there's fundamental day-to-day -day stuff that impacts those things that makes it streamlined. But I think this idea that we have to, that it doesn't make sense to me to have this dual stream of association set up given that a lot of the kind of day-to-day -day necessity stuff is repetitive. We, we could be, we can be working together and not reinventing the wheel and not doing stuff over. And I, we, I would have a hard time, I think, getting my, the board here to agree on starting, walking down this road. I love what Ruben said about taking this position in kind of a positive way, where instead of this policing kind of almost punishment, whatever scenario, you have this motivational thing that essentially pushes the market to, to push operators to perform in a certain way instead of some governing body. Set and what I'll add to that, Kara, is part of the release said that these will be voluntary guidelines. And, and so that would be the out is, oh, they're going to be voluntary. Nobody could follow it. But then it's mentioned that it'll also be like the NFPA. And anybody who's ever built a park knows that you go into an area, you go to zoning, you say, oh, there's these guidelines to NFPA. That local county looks up and sees, oh, there's also national guidelines now. Are you building your park to the national guidelines too? And now you're potentially creating a scenario where down the road, future developers have increased costs of development because whatever's on that document that is required, they didn't plan on doing it. Now they have to do it and they have to build that into their business plan. So if it's discounted by saying it's voluntary, I would argue against that. If an association like this is putting out any sort of guidelines that again, I refer back to the COVID thing. When a national association puts out that you need to tear down your playground equipment, good God, thank God, nobody picked up that document and read it. This could be the same case here. And the thing that scares me is Anything political always starts out as voluntary. And you know that down the road, it's suddenly going to become now it's a requirement. And oh, because it's a requirement, now you're also required to be a member of the organization. And so it just snowballs. And I think they may have had some good motives when they started doing this. But even the way you communicated, if they'd come out to the parks and said, hey, we've learned so much from COVID. We had campers who were confused by the name. Is it a park? Is it a resort? We want to create some standardized language around what we call our parks. How can we come alongside and help you? How can we help you with this? The reaction, I think, would have been totally different than to call it a task force to go out and establish some of the things that they said they wanted to do. Do we have a sense that those are their intentions, that the, the things that Sandy's mentioning, or we don't know any of that yet? All I don't think we know any of that yet as a fact. Right. Yeah, all we know is what's in the release. Right. Yeah, my, my sense my, my from an altruistic place is that they want to provide some sort of the people that may need it. I can't fault the intention of yeah. the goal to provide some kind of direction and stuff. Standards. I can't hold that at all. And I'm not trying to poke holes in them, but the one thing I come back again is what is the applicability of done? My sense is it's going to be read and discarded, and it won't be the thing to just say, am I still doing best practices? It'll be a one-time thing. You'll the task force will be disbanded and what have we done? So again, the altruism, I just don't know how applicable what is to every campground owner. Yeah, and I totally love what Ruben said, and I thought that was so relevant that they went through and did the due diligence 
to, to get to the point where they thought this might not be the best thing because ultimately you do become the police. And that's never a place that you want to be where you've got to oversee and do that. It's expensive. It's not friendly. And I just really hope that they'll take a step back and look at that and take some advice from some other people. Maybe they'll see the podcast and consider that. Do you, I guess maybe this is a, a question we can't, don't have answers to either, but does anyone foresee them doing that, t taking some consultation from stakeholders that, you know, smaller parks and, and things, a variety of stakeholders to get more input on how this will go? Or are we full steam ahead and it's done and decided? I, I would have a, if I had a guess, I would guess that this, this broadcast right here is about to light up a massive little fire. And I would think that a responsible re result would be exactly that. Reach out to more stakeholders and, and, and maybe draw together. Again, the folks that are named on that task force are amazing. They, they know our industry inside and out. It's not a knock on them. It's just back to Randy's statement. Why? What, why are we doing this? And, and maybe they relook at that and ask not only the why, but what is the outcome? Again, to Randy's point, is it a good document that's just discarded or is this going to be something that's going to be put into practice? So that way there's some real tangible results from it. I'm fascinated by this whole thing. I, I was saying earlier, I should spend more time on Facebook, so I'm not excited by this stuff. But yeah. If I may, there's, there's one more element to this. Again, maybe this is just my institutional thinking to some degree, but in terms of state board will go through a vision process. Many boards go through a vision process and they'll determine who are we, what are we doing, what are our objectives and what's the goal. And then if it's if done properly, visit the following year and saying, we apply, what did we learn and how do we read that going forward? If from a benchmark and a measuring stick, these are the industry best practices and standards we've determined. Let's go back and revisit the next year. What's changed in that time about how the industry has pivoted. Then it becomes a resource that you can see at the end of looking at this differently or that differently. I'm not saying keep the task force for empty till we all leave this planet. I'm not saying that by any stretch either, but it goes back to med deliverables. And I don't know that this does that in its present form. So is it possible that we're knee jerking and we need to, for more yep. measured, calculated communication? <laughs> Can you guys, yes. well, you guys I will blame Brian who started the conversation and then left during the whole thing. <laughs> I didn't want any feedback. I just wanted to give my opinion. Like my entire internet went out. I tried two phone hotspots. Like none of my Wi-Fi things were working, and then it wouldn't reconnect in here. So I don't know. Somehow I'm back, but um, I'm like, going to post sending a question that disappeared too. That was kind of cool, Brian. Just put post up for that work. Hold the grenade. <laughs> we could be, and I was watching a little bit of you guys on while I was trying to figure it out. Like I could watch. I just couldn't join the stream again. And so I heard a little bit of your conversation, but I think you're like, it's possible that we are overreacting, that we're, we don't have all the facts. I think from my perspective, just coming from a modern campground side, Arvik doesn't communicate with us. They don't send us releases. They don't respond to our emails. And so we struggle to get some of this information. And then what's left is speculation. Right. We'd love to have their side of the story, but we've been unable to get them to communicate with us on a regular basis. But I, I think what's super interesting though, looking at it from a bit of the outside of the side is that what this has shown is that it, it is a bit of an important topic to people, right? 
the fact that a little bit has gotten out there and the fact that there's been a reaction like this just shows how important, how maybe volatile the, the topic can be and that it is important that it should be front and center. I think the other part that really comes to mind is that think of how much the outdoor industry has changed in the last two or three years. And from a national level, it doesn't matter who you are. I think I wouldn't call it a danger, but the thing that you have to always be careful about is what we're doing and what we're implementing, allowing for pivots and change in growth within the industry or by doing X, Y, and Z, are we really hurting the industry? And that's a tough question. And since we don't have all the answers from exactly what they would define as that standardization, but I'd imagine the next five years, there's going to be significant change. The amount of parks that have a different mixed usage, the investment that's going into all sorts of campground, RV park, uh, glamping, everything is changing so rapidly that it's almost, you're trying to put a piece of yarn around an ever expanding building, right? Like it's just never going to hold. You almost have to let it grow in a way and deflect and allow for that growth to happen. So I think that would be one of the, the fundamental questions that I see in here is whatever is going to happen, going to allow for that growth to continue to happen and unpredictable growth. Nobody can sit here and say, first of all, and I know exactly where it's going to Yeah, totally. That's my biggest concern is do we then hinder that organic kind of the nature of this industry and, and how it, and I think again, going back to that same thing where it's so adaptable and that's part of its nature. Are we risking hindering their organic growth and shifting and, and things that are dictated by the market when we go down the road like this? And one of the things is that if you look at the group that's on the task force, they're all members of multi-park systems. And so standardization is already a part of their everyday lore. I don't see anybody on there that little mom and pop that's on that task force representing that group which is a huge group of parks still, even with all the aggregation that's going on, there is still a huge number of small mom and pops. And I would love to see them represented on the task force. Agreed. Do we have a sense of, and maybe Randy, this because you're getting into a little bit of the hotel space, I wish we had Mike on here who used to work for Marriott. He's on our, one of our other week calls, but do we have a sense of, is, does this exist in the hotel industry? Like, I feel like it doesn't because they're again, Marriott. IHG have their standards divided by different branding and different standards across those brands, much like KOA has their standards and I'm sure Jellystone has their standards, but is there somebody who's attempting to say and define what a standard hotel room is for the entire industry? I feel like I've never seen that. And if there, never probably, there probably is, if there is, I'm good. I think the difference is, as you said, got very established with its brand with very rich procedures. Because you don't have the outdoor hospitality industry yet. Ruben, yet. good. Not yet. Coming. Ruben might have a better sense than I about the hotel space, actually. No, that, that's a good question. I know that there is a level of standardization, but when you think about it, it's evolved over a very long period of time. So as I look at what we do in Glamping, we have a limited amount of data and information because it's something that's a bit more than recent, right? RVs and campgrounds have a lot more data and a lot more history. And then hotels after that have even more data, history, standards. So I think the key difference is, yeah, I'm certain that there's something 
that is there when it comes to building development and items like that, but it's also evolved to over a long period of time. And there isn't as much versatility to it. We think the hotel is a hotel. We think of it from a development standpoint. An RV park that's in Cal upstate California or a campground that's in Southern Florida, there's wildly different development needs from size to market to scope to, is there food and beverage? Maybe yes or no. Swimming pool, yes or no. On-site activities where hotels, I think whatever standardization does exist, it allows for it because it's a bit more of a cookie cutter approach is that brick and mortar and there isn't that need for versatility where a campground, an RV park, a campground, it's really hard to shove them into several boxes, let alone one box that, that actually doesn't cause more problems down the road. I think from a hotel standpoint, yes, you're metropolitan, you're in a city, here's what you need to do, live with most of this, and then you can do your own thing. Can you take that stamp and say, great, this is good in Florida and Montana and whether you're an RV park or resort or campground or mixed usage, I, I don't think so. And I think that might be the, the key difference. And we'll be fair. We'll be fair to Arvik and say it's possible that they've thought all this through. It's possible that the standards that they're going to come up with are going to be regional or north, south, east, west, or California versus Montana. They could be working on those things, but if they are, then maybe they should communicate that either through further releases or announcements or talking to those independent park owners, because there's, there is good that can come of this. It just depends on how you approach it and how you frame it. And unfortunately we're just speculating here because we don't have anybody from National Arvik who's willing to speak to it. Yeah. And regardless right, of addressing that small mom and pop portion that's missing is a necessity. If I were a member of that association and saw the list of task force participants as a mom and pop park owner. I would have, I would express the expectation that my sector of the market was able to have a voice there. Go ahead, Randy. I'm Brian. sorry. Yeah, Brian, you just said a map there, and I think it speaks to the harder. The reason we're all assembled here talking about this in a kind of a theme is because the absence of information or communication methodology and the direction of this were task force, right? If it was accumulated, easy to be a Monday morning quarterback, but if it said the goal is this, we expect to extract this, the deliverable is this, our intention is this, we're not going to do your stuff and just provide industry as we gathered from this sample for you to apply. And th these are why we people for these specific things. If I read that, then I understand it and nothing about it today, but it, in the absence of that, it was like a bunking together and they're going to be doing this sports and the rest of us are thinking, what about the small park over here? What am I supposed to do with it? Communication, dressing the deliverable, I think is what's happening. Well, and that's part of the reason I chose to address it today and start off the conversation that way is because I know from doing reviews, right? For parks for uh, over a, a 10 years that 95% of people don't leave their feedback anywhere that you can find it. Only 5% do. And I feel like that's probably the same with Mark's group and the post he put out. And so I feel like the pattern there was what's happening, what's going on, what's this going to go? Is it more regulations? What are the ramifications of this? I feel like there's a whole larger group of people who don't comment that probably have the same questions. So to that I point, think that there's no. I'll go ahead, Randy. I was going to say, like, from the list of names that they've had on there, the participating in that. A couple, of, a couple of the owners of those parks, uh, I know fairly well, and I know they, they started with 
fairly humble roots. And they started with a, a campground and they've grown them over time. I would think again, knowing a couple of these personally, that I think they would sympathize with this conversation. Maybe they'd sympathize with the fact that they, that's, this is where almost every campground owner until recently has come from. They started with 25 or 50 sites or, and they've grown over time. They've bought more land over time. And of course you have some larger sectors coming in and wanting all of that and more land to, to continue which is fine, but I would probably give the benefit of the doubt that, that they understand that industry. When you talk about the changeover of larger groups coming in, it is so far down where as, as, as fast as that is happening, you're talking tens of thousands of parks that still need to be acquired for, for that to, for that shift to happen. The large corporate may, may own seven to 9% of the inventory. Now, maybe there's still so much left. That would need to be bought out in such a short period of time for that. I think the, for the majority to be that way. And so to me, there, you know, there could be some encouraging that those owners that are coming from some of those more humble roots of where they built their care from, I, I would hope would have the best interest for those smaller parks. And you would hope so anyways. When that goes back to the, I led off the show by saying that I have a lot of respect for everybody who's been nominated and who's a part of that task force. And you're right, Casey, I think they do have. At least some of them probably have the best, but we don't know. Nobody's communicating with us and nobody's saying, who is the decision maker? Is it equal vote? Is it a democracy? Is that ultimately Arvik is going to overrule and decide whatever they want? Like we just need some communication and some understanding because I think you're right, but I don't know. Sure. Or I hope you're right. Maybe a lot of the, feed a lot of the feedback in Mark's group really brings us to bear because <clears throat> campground owners that are in that thread that had some pretty strong about how they view this. But again, in the absence of information, there's speculation when you sometimes you assume the worst. This could be the best thing that's happened in a millennial, all we know. We just don't know what it is, why they're doing it. And that's the part your thread was very enlightening because if that's the perception. And to that, Reed, I was actually surprised at the responses a little bit that they were so in the tone and in the manner in which they were, it, it just, and again, the whole reason I posted is obviously it's important. I thought people should know that was happening. And then number two, the claim, just the claim in the release, again, I go back to that number, it claimed that they represented 13,000 campgrounds. And if you're going in, if that's the goal, if that's the thought pattern that you actually represent 13,000 campgrounds, you're going to make decisions based upon that. I want to make it clear. ARVC does not represent 13,000 campgrounds in the United States. They don't flat out don't. So. That was a, that was my big call to action there. And that was, again, the responses to that post were not positive. They were, some were hopeful, but most of them were pretty negative. And could be what Kara said about, Hey, there's no small park owners on this. Yeah. And again, it's perception. And so I feel like that's, what's lacking here is national Arabic does have an opportunity to come out and clarify this. They did have an opportunity to word their press release different. Like we're, I'm happy to talk to them and give them a voice and give them, share their thoughts. And maybe we are wrong, but I can't make them communicate with us or make them communicate with owners or make them communicate better. Well, I think they're the obvious reaction from people in, on Mark's posts and probably I'm sure it's not the only place that they're hearing that stuff will be a good motivator for them to address the questions coming out. I think time, the press release came out yesterday. No. Yes. I think two days ago. Oh, two days ago. Okay. Okay. Give them some time. <laughs> To formulate the like, there's a pause out of all this stuff with my businesses. If somebody says, gee, Randy, you're up in the clouds again, that may be the single dumb idea I have heard in my lifetime. 
I'm, I'm really happy to hear it because, okay, getting the reality check. That's what I need. If, if I'm Arvik, I hope I'm Wado and the takeaway is not we're trying to tear them down to their raptors where you have a perception issue and a messaging issue. And I hope they would see structured and helpful and beneficial to the crafting their future messages and reaching structured manner and defining their objectives. This is not a slam. It's about, Hey, we want to help. So are you hearing us? Mark, you I think that's very, I hope that's very clear. That's the intention. We just need to hear from them and hear their side. And our intention is not to say we're right. Like what we're saying here might not be right. We're, we certainly don't speak for the industry either, but we've seen a difference of opinions in the Facebook group. We've obviously got our own opinions here. We've seen what Arvik's opinions are, at least the very limited opinions that are stated in the press release are facts. And so we just need to bring those ideas together and maybe not decide for the entire industry, but figure out a path forward that it is inclusive of everyone's opinion. Yeah. It's valuable to set reasonable expectations in any sort of relationship. And so communicating them is a necessity. Did get the sense from some of those posts that you would do as it is it where you immediately go, how's this going to impact me? How do, how should I react to this? What's my, here's my gut instinct stuff. And yeah, it needs addressing. Sure. All right. We spent 41 minutes and 19, 20, 21 seconds on that. So what else is on your desk? Let's pivot away from that for a second. What else has come across your desk in the last month or so since we've had a chance to connect? I know Casey's been missing from the show for a couple of times. It's been busy, but anybody else have anything that they feel is relevant and should be brought up here? I wanted to, if I could jump in. So if you remember, I've had previous conversations about the rising fuel prices, impacts of inflation on travel. We're now far enough in where we're actually seeing the outcome of these changes and the consumers have changed significantly. Their travel trends, obviously staying closer to home, not going on the longer distance journeys. But what's very rewarding for our industry is that people are still traveling. They're still camping. The campgrounds in general are doing well. Now there are some parks that are still struggling that are along those long distance routes or far away from population centers. Those areas, those parks are definitely feeling it. But the good trend is that we are seeing people camping and, and traveling. I'm, I'm on a journey right now back east again, and I was just on the interstate yesterday and it was just a sea of RVs on the, on the interstate, not the ones being delivered to dealerships, but actually people using that, going someplace to camping with those RVs. So it's nice to see that the resiliency of our industry is showing forth right now in the face of all the noise that is out there. And that I just want to set in everybody's mind, it's getting noisy again, and we're now going into these midterm elections. And then we have a ramp up into the presidential election. I'm already banking on two and a half years of nuts. So enjoy the summer. It's only going to get crazier. <laughs> One of the things that I found really interesting over the last few weeks was the impact that the airlines strike and people with all the different cancellation of flights and all that, and how that had an immediate impact on reservations and campgrounds. So for all the different people I work with that are providing stats back to us, we also did a really quick, like 3000 person survey. And people were saying that before what happened with the airlines, they were considering selling their rig. Now they're scared again and they're keeping their rigs because they want to be able to vacation and they're not going to trust the airline. And so that was another really good thing for our industry. I hate it for the airline industry, but I love it for us because it's given people those reasons to keep those campers and keep camp. Okay. Anybody else have anything to add before I'll throw in a random topic if nobody else has anything? I got one. If you, I got I want if you don't mind. Yeah. Real quick, real question for you, good sir. With the glamping 
industry. I have this thesis that during economic down times, it isn't just that makes you decide to go this way or that, although sometimes it is. It's how the economy in general, do I feel like a confident consumer? Gas being part of it, inflation being another part of that. I think there's more glamping segment as there is in RV outdoor hospitality to make real have a very good experience once they do arrive. Is the emphasis on even greater than maybe it was with the economic crisis? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that could definitely transition over to all of outdoors in general and what's going to happen over the next two or three years with that volatility that Mark's talking about, because we, we talk about looming recession, we talk about gas prices, we talk about all these things that are unknowns. So I like to just pivot back to what is known. Business travel has bounced back a little bit, but not 100%. International travel has bounced back a bit, but not 100%. And people are still gravitating towards that hyper-local travel, eating the gas prices, knowing that, hey, it's better than hopping on a flight and going to Paris at the moment. So I think what we've seen in the space on our end, which has been interesting, is that there has still been a wide variety of average daily rate or price points that people are charged. Some glamping operations are charged $35, $45 a night. Some are $35,000 a night and then everywhere in between. And so as the outdoors continues to grow at a rapid pace. I think the theme that I keep seeing is that it's not, the outdoors is still proven not to be this recession proof, but still recession resilient. We've heard that time and time again, which everybody's excited about. And yeah, does it keep people there? Do you have the extra experiences and add-ons that people can pay for? Are there cost-effective avenues in kind of unique travel, everything in the outdoors? Yeah, but I, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens here in the next year or so. There's just tremendous amount of movement. You have a lot of people who transitioned to the outdoors, people who are used to hotel stays that said, I haven't been camping in a long time. I don't know why I haven't been doing this. And they went five times this summer already. And now sure, they're not going to go camping for every one of their vacations, but it's now part of their repertoire right now. They're building it back in. And so that is something that I'll keep a close eye on is if you take 10 vacations, if that makes sense. And. What does that do for the price point? So yeah, we're still seeing a lot of people who are doing that hyper-local travel, driving a few hours and doing that more consistently. And then as the work from anywhere thing still continues to shake itself out every day, companies are saying, Hey, we're going back in the office. And every day there's companies saying work hundred percent work from anywhere. So those operations that can provide a strong Wi-Fi working environment will be very interesting to to track as well. So yeah. I want to work from a sailboat. <clears throat> That's totally irrelevant, but I, I was reading, I read a, it was the verge. I read this tech news podcast that I read a summary of, they were talking about working from a sailboat, working right here with Starlink and generators and solar power. And it really is possible today. So it is possible. I am part of a Facebook group of campers here in Alberta. And there's a gentleman in there that posted the other day, a Thank you letter to Elon Musk for Starlink so that he can camp for the rest of his life and still work. So, you know, when, but he, when, can, he can't, he can't I, work for Elon because Elon wants him all to come in the office. So it's like a catch going too. But anyway, go ahead, Mark. Starlink a lot. I was going to add on to that because I, I did a, a post back when that Starlink announced that they had the RV year plant. It is, it, that is the most significant improvement in our industry ever. And it's not related to our industry, it's connectivity. Because connectivity creates opportunities for people to go on the road and to travel 
and spend a lot of time on the road. Our industry, this goes back to the original conversation. Our industry will drastically change over the next five to 10 years, drastically. The amount of people that will be camping and traveling and not doing it just for vacations, but maybe doing it as part of their lifestyle, part of their travel plans is going to increase. So I will, I'll go on the record and say that it's going to increase and it's going to change the way our industry works, the way parts work, the way pricing plans, the way you price your sites is going to change. And so we just see a lot of change coming down the road as a result of one thing, connectivity. When we've talked about briefly, we won't get into it again, but we've talked to the, the Cyberlander guys about how they have, it's the add-on for the Cybertruck that you can go camping in and has recyclable water and solar panels and electricity and all that kind of stuff. And we talked to them about how, yes, we have interest from camping, but we also have interest from soccer moms to have a clean bathroom and from people who are working from home to park outside in nature. And so we've speculated before, you know, what if you can rent a campsite for half a day and go work and people can sit at your campground midweek when you don't have those sites filled and they can look at your pond or your nature or your trees or whatever else. And you're talking about more of these electric vehicle companies are popping up, not just for Tesla, but imagine a, like, why do you have to be either a hotel or a camping guest? Why can't you, why can't you travel in your cyber truck or your electric vehicle and camp on the way to a hotel or the way to a resort and then camp on the way back or vice versa? I think there's a lot of things that are going to come out of these innovations that we can't even begin to imagine yet. I will say, according to the recent tests of the Ford Lightning, you really can't go camping with that thing and tow anything anywhere. So we're still a few years off from that. Randy and I were, I don't know if I'm, my internet's going bad again, but Randy and I were discussing that in a Slack channel about the Ford Lightning and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like they're coming out with a 2023 model in October, and hopefully you guys can hear me and I'm not pausing, but... Uh, yeah. In, in October of 2023, they're going to start, or this year on October, they're going to start production of the 2023 model. Cars innovate very quickly. Batteries are going to innovate very quickly. I think it's very plausible that a third party comes out with an add-on battery that you can tie in through the tow pack. Maybe even some of these electric RVs come with batteries that can link into that too. And it's really just, it's not a torque or a pulling issue. It's a battery longevity issue. And that's not too hard to solve. It's always been a bad idea. Yeah. And it's all battery thing, I think. And that's, uh, Brian and I were pretty jobs yesterday. And I said, according to this motor tent study, I'd love to spend hundred thousand dollars on a truck with hundred miles only while towing something and hour, an hour and a half to charge back up. But that sounds like value. I'm thinking to myself, my thing saying, so your hundred thousand dollar truck today, I'm going to buy for 30 on a lot that's full with them next year. The technology is going to run laps around you, but take the form of a paper at some point. Today's technology is going to be deadly outdated. Yeah, to be sure, nobody's saying it's ready now, but there are like, no. once we have a fast charging network and we build that stuff up, like it's going to, it's going to scale quickly. They've said, I watched after you posted that, Randy, some videos about the Ford Lightning being able to quick charge up to 80% in 40 some minutes. And again, that you have to use a quick charger. You can't plug it in at a campsite or a regular place, but these things are going to expand. And so I don't, I, like, yes, it's not there yet, but I don't think it's quite as far off as people imagine it is. If you go that route, though, the, the big problem you have there, though, is where is that electricity coming from? Yeah. When you've got a reduction in power plants, a reduction in transmission, but you can't, California is having brownouts. You can't, if you can't charge the car, it ain't going anywhere. I agree with you. There, there's obviously some interest in going down that route. I personally believe right now there's no tangible steps being taken other than banning gas vehicles that are going to move us down that route, if that makes sense. So it's one thing to say, hey, everybody has to buy an electric car by 2030. But if you're not permitting power generation, if you're not building those power generation plants, 
you're not improving the infrastructure, who cares? I'm going to have an electric car that's sitting in the lot because I can't charge it. With 12 batteries on it. Yeah. It doesn't matter how many batteries it's got. <laughs> yeah, I would just, I'd rather not buy the bag phone the year before the iPhone appeared. I, I wouldn't have to look <laughs> really cool that's brick true. when next year here comes iPhone. I mean, I, I'm not an electric stretch the imagination. It's going to happen. It's all coming. I just think way too early to spend that much on something that is cool as it's being portrayed in real life. A lot of ants don't think we're anywhere close to you, the ubiquitous kind of thing that a lot of folks are forecasting, but that, that's just me. Completely agree. Yeah. A lot of people spend a lot of money and a lot more stupid things, but we'll see. We'll see what ends. <laughs> They're buying them. I mean, the Cyberlander was pre-sold. I had several, a few hundred units pre-sold and they're not even in manufacture yet. They're buying this stuff already. There, there's a market already. It's coming. What do you know? I'll be a year three by not a year one by. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> year three is not that way, not that far away, Randy. I'm just saying. Dude, we're going to hold you to that. We're going to play this recording for you in October of 2025 for four. Yeah. Tw October of 2023 actually will be year three when they start production. So you don't have to, too long here, Randy. We're going to play the recording back for you and you're going to have to buy one. Yeah. But to that, that point, if, if that happens in two years, Brian, if they're able to get the range up to 250, 300 miles towing. Electric vehicles beat gas vehicles all day long. You got instant torque, all that yeah. power. So if that's a possibility, you would see a massive shift immediately. Yeah. Again, I don't, I don't it's, think, it's, the, and I'm so sorry, I'm just lagging here. So if I'm overlapping somebody, I look like I'm choppy on my end. So hopefully I'm coming through on your end fine. You're fair on I, I think that the answer is not necessarily going to be quick for Ford putting a bigger battery on the Ford Lightning. But I think that you see some of these electric vehicle and RV sniffing manufacturers and even third-party just sell a battery pack you can sit in the bed of your truck or whatever that can connect to the tow and expand the... I think there's going to be third-party vendors outside of Ford. And I think that's yes. the quickest pick. Well, and in the meantime, we have to be able to help educate our parks and equip them on how to handle this. Because I've already had a park that couldn't have a better infrastructure where people have come in with their electric cars, decided to plug up on the post to plug it to charge their car. And when they did, they went inside and tried to run the microwave and do other things. And guess what? The refrigerator went out because they're not designed to be able to run all that powder. And so parks need to be equipped and educated on how do you handle somebody who comes in and tries to plug their car in? Not all the power is clean power. If it damages the car because they plugged into your post, what's going to happen? And those are the things we need to be educating our parks on or some national organization or some state organization doing that to help them get prepared along the way until all this is ready. It's well, a good idea, Sandy. We should create a task force to create standards yeah. for electric vehicles across the industry. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the new lightnings, I'll hit up the task force. <laughs> and you signed up. Um, it go, that goes back to, to the, the power provider, the amount of power available. In my park, I had 200 sites and plenty of transformers. And in the peak of July, when it's 40 degrees Celsius, sorry guys, I don't know what that is for you. We were blackout. We had blackouts all the time. The idea that my 250 amp sites are throwing things off now. If we, 
our parks need are going to need support to make that transition. No question. There's this middle ground, right? Absolutely. We got campgrounds are coming up this way to handle electric. Electric is finally starting up this way. Those two worlds are equal, but neither world is there yeah. yet. Parks aren't ready for them, and the vehicles aren't there. There's a few year gap for becomes really start planning now. Obviously, oh, yeah. there's no question about that. Parks planned for yesterday, no doubt about it. But we're in that nebulous zone in between those two worlds, I think. And Brian, to your point about the task force, I would say yes, as long as the press release, they're going to talk about stuff and we'll get back to you. That's all the press release needs to say, but it's <laughs> self-evident. No, I think if they said that, we would be on here saying, what are they going to talk about? What are they going to talk about? <laughs> it's interesting though, I mean, with sure. speculation is entertaining. Sorry, Casey, go ahead. No, I was going to say with, with the charging stations, it's interesting because a lot of the charging stations currently, they have attached themselves to hotels. Like hotels have 100% said, this is where we see this going. And we want to be, I personally have stayed at hotels because it's in route to a kid's baseball game that I can plug in at. I've used it multiple times only because of that reason. I got to imagine there's some data around the value of adding that type of charging station and uh, the revenue that it's going to potentially bring to that, or maybe it's supplementing with the restaurants that are around there. Because again, you're charging for 40 minutes or you knew you're going to eat, you're going to sit there and flip through your phone or whatever, but you're looking for a destination where you can charge at some point overnight and hotels and they are taking advantage of it. It's a matter of, is there campgrounds that are on some of these interstates that are these overnight aspects of things you can charge for it, right? It's not like you can't charge for it. It's just a matter of, do they want to invest in it? Because it will become relevant because as much as I hate always comparing hotels to the camping industry, I think the camping industry is so much better and so much more unique. And there's so many more cool things and within it, the fact that they have taken, they have made a, a massive investment over the last 10 years. I think parks can, that there, there's an opportunity there because then they're staying there overnight. Hopefully you're getting that business that way. And this kind of goes back to the whole idea of policing things that Ruben brought back because what most, a lot of my parks are experiencing now is people come in with their electric cars. They don't know it's an electric car or not. They don't watch them as they come in. Then they go plug up at the post. That post is not metered. And so now their profit margin is reduced because they're charging their electric car. So even if nothing happens, even if there's no brownout, no damage, it still lowered their costs. Now you take that across multiple sites as they become more for it, more popular. And so parks don't want to have to go out and police it. Then they don't know what to do or have to talk to that guest. They're trying to get a good guest experience, but they hate to go out and saying, Hey, you can't plug up at that post. I'm not charging you for that. I think the right. big topic this year at Arvik will be this metered post thing. Is everyone going to move to that? It is everyone. You have to do that in order to have a profitable business. And I don't think it's quite there yet, but that's probably something that eventually, you know, that's going to become a pretty relevant topic too. All right. I think we got to wrap up guys. Great conversation as always. We could probably take it another hour if we really wanted to, but we're a little bit over an hour and I know all of you have other important things to do besides sitting here and chatting with us. So I apologize for my internet connection today. I was in and out. I didn't get a chance in the beginning to thank our sponsor for the show, which is Fireside Accounting. I don't know if their banner is going to come up in front of us here. Hopefully it does. For whatever reason, I'm still choppy on the back end over here, but super grateful for Fireside Accounting for sponsoring this episode. We say it always, but as you go through different milestones and different events and in the course of your park, it's always the best time 
to get an expert accountant on your team, but like now we've got inflation and now we've got new tax laws and all those kinds of things. And so bringing somebody in, Lindsay and her team is always a good idea. They just know the industry and all the ins and outs and can probably help you save quite a significant amount of money on your taxes and do your bookkeeping properly. So again, thank you for counting. Any final thoughts from anybody before we head out? Your week. Yeah. All right. Thanks guys. I don't know. It's super choppy for, but thank you guys. I really appreciate it again. Uh, Ruben, can we announce what we're going to do next week? Is it a thing? Or should sure, we go yes. All right. So next week we normally do theme shows. If you guys are on a way, our first week of, of the month is the campground discussion show that we're having right now. The second week of the month is unthemed. The third is the campground owners and the fourth is RV industry. And then once in a while we have a fifth. It's terrible because I can't get enough guests for it because it's randomly unplanned. But the second week. We're going to focus on a glamping themed episode going forward. And so Ruben is going to shift from the open discussion show. He's going to join us on the second week going forward. He'll be here next week too. And then every second week going forward. And we're currently putting together a roster of really cool glamping experts, owners, people like that who can really dive into the glamping trends and things like that. So we're excited to launch that next week. See where that goes. I'm really excited for that. So other than that, we got to get out of here. Two and a half minutes over. Thank you guys. Really appreciate you watching and joining us for another episode here. Hopefully my internet will be better next week. And we'll see you all then. Bye. Thanks for watching this episode of MC Fireside Chats, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. Have a suggestion for a future show or want to see your campground or company as part of an episode? Email us at hello at moderncampground.com. Join us next week for another episode. And don't miss the latest outdoor hospitality news and commentary from around the world at moderncampground.com.